I like to oftentimes encourage a resource whenever I know one uh, for you to go to further reading. Um, I didn't think to order this in enough time, so we don't have it in our resource center. But this is a book called Counterfeit Gods by a Presbyterian pastor named Timothy Keller. This guy is a beast. If you've never heard of Tim Keller, he is a mental gift to the body of Christ, and his writing is uh, just incredible. And I've enjoyed listening to his sermons as well as uh, reading this book. So I highly recommend it. You can find it on Amazon, Counterfeit Gods by Timothy Keller. I'll quote it once today. And uh, speaking of our resource center, I just saw we got new journals, man. It's got left on that. Look at that junk, man. You get your pen out and you spend time with God in your journal. Okay, that's good. All right. Let's jump into scripture. If you got your Bible with you, Go with me to the second book of the Bible, Exodus chapter 20. If you've got your leather bound, that'll be all the way on the left end of your Bible because it's only the second book that Moses wrote. If you're on a smart device, well, it's at the top of your scrolling book of uh, list of books. Don't put it in alphabetical order. Go to the top and, and go to uh, Exodus and follow along. This is where... God's people have just been um, uh, released from slavery and bondage in Egypt, and now they are on their own, and they have been freed by God, and God wants to give them instructions, and so Moses is on the mountain of God, Mount Sinai, and God speaks um, some new rules of order, some new lifestyles, some new, if you want to be my people, let's let these things define us. This is how we will roll. This is how we will uh, dis distinguish ourselves from the rest of the people who exist today. There should be something that distinguishes us even today when we follow God. And, and this is what he originally said in what we will now call the Ten Commandments. And here's the first two I want to read. It says, then God gave the people all these instructions. I am the Lord your God who rescued you from the land of Egypt, the place of slavery. When he says, I'm the one who rescued you, it's kind of like God saying, I'm the only God who did that, by the way. No other God has ever delivered you from so much captivity, hang up, and, and, and when your life was jacked up, no other God has done this for you. Not Baal, not Dagon, not Mammon, not, not uh, uh, Muhammad, not Buddha, not Confucius, not Asherah. No girlfriends ever busted you out. No boyfriends ever come through like this. No horoscope, rabbit's foot, lucky underwear, or dream catcher has ever done what I have done for you. I am the only God who has rescued you. Therefore, <laughs> you must not have any other God but me. What do you mean? What, 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 what could be other gods? I think uh, the second commandment is almost elaborating on the first one. You must not make for yourselves an idol of any kind or an image of anything in the heavens or on the earth or in the sea. You must not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God who will not tolerate your affections for any other gods. I think this is God standing at the altar to marry you and I in covenant, and he's saying, if you want to run around, I am not the one for you. <laughs> I'm all about covenant here. I am a jealous God. I'm admitting it. I desire complete devotion. 
And if you're unsure about this kind of relationship, don't get in it with me. Because it's all or nothing with me. Now, he goes on to say, if you roll with me, you're going to roll with the blessed life. If you don't, all bets are off. Good luck. There are a lot of forces out there, including the devil and all of his minions, who are looking to take you down, and they don't promise you what I promise you. But, oh, doesn't it seem so alluring when all kinds of other things give us false promises. In fact, that's my message for today on False Gods 1. If you're a note taker and you like titles, here's my title, The Empty Promises of Replacing God. Now, this series, as I said came after Out of the Cave because it's almost a continuation of the discussion I started in Out of the Cave. Because back in 2008, probably the last major um, economic disturbance or, or maybe the last major uh, blip and disturbance and lifestyle stoppage that we have gone through um, from 2020 previous to that was 2008. Many of you know that. That was the day... The, the, the stock market fell apart, the housing market fell apart, the economic collapse happened, all kinds of bank accounts went from six figures down to four figures and is life over and, and, and everything we put our trust in and relied on, a lot of our certainties and comforts really got rattled in that time. Can you remember it? I remember my wife and I had just said yes to a new ministry opportunity. We're going to leave all of our comforts and what we've established and the reputation we have in a well-paying, consistent job, and we're going to say yes to moving from Louisiana to Maryland. And then the stock market crashed, and the house market crashed, and everything crashed, and on the plane, while my wife flew over, I'm driving, it was a 24-hour drive, and I'm thinking, am I getting fired the moment I show up on my first day? Am I going to be let go? It plagued so many people that a string of suicides started uh, piling up right after that collapse, right? And so uh, there were formerly wealthy and well-connected individuals. For example, the CFO of Freddie Mac committed suicide. The, the CEO of the leading U.S. real estate auction firm went to his red Jaguar, which is the status of prestige, and you made it, bro, and he shot himself in the driver's seat of his red Jaguar. The, the, um, um, an international money manager for high rollers and royalty who invested into the U.S. stock markets went and overdosed on drugs and threw himself off of a building. Why? Because these people who had built such elaborate, illustrious um, uh, uh, careers that we often looked up to realized that they built their life serving the God of money, the God of mammon. And when mammon was no longer able to fulfill the promise that they thought this God made to them, everything fell out. The bottom fell out. And so I think there are some things that happen without of the cave that we can change some behaviors and some lifestyles, but spiritually we got to go deeper and we got to make sure that on the throne of our heart, on the throne of our life, we have a capital G worthy God who is sitting there and not some false God. So who's this series for? I believe this series um, is for two types of people. Number one is the, the Christian believer. 
There is a lot of people today who say, I'm a Christian pastor. We say we're a Christian. We wear that we're a Christian. We post our description about us on our net social networks as I am a Christian. And yet, um, I don't think any Christian intentionally wakes up and says, you know, today I want to replace God with my phone. I want to spend more time with it. I want to spend more devotion to it. I want to trust it and Google and all the other things more than I trust God today. I don't think Christians wake up with this kind of mindset. I don't think Christians wake up and say, you know, today I think I want to replace the man with my man. My man's looking good. Right? Like, I don't think it's a cognitive, intentional decision, but haven't we all fallen prey to it before? We go through seasons of life, whether long or short, where maybe money has taken the throne, my job, my title, my, my, my colleagues and correspondences, uh, the news, uh, my image, uh, and all kinds of things try to hijack the throne of God in our lives. And so I think many believers unintentionally serve a false God, and they don't even know it. I know I have before. I have. This series is also for those who go, Pastor Drew, that's, that's great, but I'm not even there yet. Like, honestly, I'm here listening to you today because someone asked me to come or someone challenged me to come or maybe I saw a post and I don't really truly believe in God at this moment. And I say that this series is for you too because there is still an empty promise when you serve any God other than the one true high God. And I want to introduce you to him this series and I want you to lean into this and, and check me on this because I believe this. I, I wrote it down this way. The tragedy of a false God is you leave the real God for the empty promises and the eventual despair of never finding what you seek. I'm going to say that again. The tragedy of a false God is you leave the real God for the empty promises and the eventual despair of never finding what you seek. I think many have said, I'm not ready to give my life to God. I'm not even sure if God exists, but I know what I'm currently doing is not working. It's the eventual despair of a lowercase g God that never was made to carry the uppercase g stature in our life. So um, I think if, if you intentionally uh, don't trust him, I think you'll find uh, you're working against nature the same as a young man who says, you know, uh, y'all make too much hoopla about having good breath and, and nice smelling body odor when I tried to find a worthy spouse in life. I think it's equally ignorant just to say that um, I don't think it will affect me if I, if I just act like the, the real God doesn't even matter if I don't make a decision today. Much like the young man who doesn't make a decision on deodorant, I think it will affect you adversely. And so I want you to explore with us. And I, I think I want you to, to, to check me on this. And so what defines who's God? Here's my definition of God in your life. It is... Our God is whatever we place number one on the priority list of our lives. If I asked you to take out a piece of paper and I said write down one, two, three, four, five, and I say the thing that matters to you most, whatever you put in that first line, that's your idol. That's your God. That is the one that your behaviors will shift to the most. 
And anytime we put anyone other than God Almighty in that uh, category, I believe you're in, you're in for a bunch of empty promises, heartache, and it will affect your life adversely. Now, number two might be a great number two, number three is great, number four, and number five. But we have got to decide what is number one in our lives. Now, for example, I'm a pastor, and uh, I have been pastored, and I do pastor the pastors of our church, and the ones that I sow into in other congregations. I say this, you should have a, a priority list in your life. Number one should always be God. Number two should always be your family. And number three should always be the church. Now, there will be many people who will want me to move my number three to my number two. But those are the same people who will probably leave me, but my family's not leaving me. <laughs> All right? My family has got to be the most important thing to me. Um, but, but it falls second to God Almighty. My wife and I always had a running joke. I would like to say in public sometimes, how does it feel to be number two in my life, right? And, and that just sounds terrible if it's out of context, but her and I knew what it sounded like because God's got to be God in my life and God needs to be God in her life. Because the moment she flips number one and two, boy, do I feel like the man, but the weight is crushing because I can't be God in your life. I can't be ever-present. I can't be omnipotent. Oh, I'm trying to curl as many pounds as I possibly can, but these guns are yet not yet omnipotent. And every time I get on a plane, daggone it, I lose my omnipresence again. I need God to be with her always. And I need my kids to know God is number one. Not dad. Daddy's at best number two or three along with mommy. Come on. So we have got to keep this in order. Now, here, this is really important, so I want you to write this down. Our mouth doesn't get to define our God. Our mouth doesn't get to define our God. Our behaviors and thoughts do. Oh, we wish it was our mouth because we can say a lot of stuff that we don't walk the walk. Right? We can say, I'm a Christian, just like I can say, my family's number two and the church is number three. But my wife doesn't care what I say if my behaviors don't line up with. She starts saying, you spent a lot of time at work lately. You know, you know a lot more going on there than you know about your family, right? We're talking about my work might be the church. What about you? Because work is one of the common things that can take our place or the affections of another or a spouse or a family member. And so we have got to make sure that we have on the throne of our lives, number one, uh, I don't get to say it, my behavior defines it, is God in the top slot. I believe that many Christians believe they are followers of Jesus, and yet their actions and their social feeds might contradict. I, I, I don't know everything about your life from a social feed, so I'm not the judge. God is the judge. But I want to help you understand that our behaviors get to define who is God. And um, Timothy Keller said it like this. We may not physically kneel down before the statue of Aphrodite, but many young women today are driven into depression and eating disorders by an obsessive concern over their body image. We may not actually burn incense to Artemis, 
But when money and career are raised to cosmic proportions, we perform a kind of child sacrifice, neglecting family and community to achieve a higher place in business and gain more wealth and prestige. In other words, the gods that often become false gods are not so old school like, I haven't been to Aphrodite's temple in a very long time. <laughs> They're far more intangible. They're almost like the sneaky foxes that spoil the vine. You, you know, the Bible talks about the sneaky foxes that spoil the vine. And, and it says in Song of Solomon, which is a poetic love relationship between a man and a woman, which is supposed to tell us about the love relationship between God and us. And they are so in love. And she's like, my heartbeat is connected with his and his heartbeat is connected with mine. Therefore, Song of Solomon's, she says to her lover, Catch all the foxes, those little foxes, before they ruin the vineyard of our love, for the grapevines are blossoming. Oh, who was that? Was that the little golem that's in all of our lives saying those sneaky little foxes? It's the sneaky little foxes that are inside going, my precious. I must maintain control and possession of my precious. I think we all can relate to Gollum way more than we really want to. And some of you are like, who's Gollum? Go watch Lord of the Rings. Okay, anyway, that should be, that should be at the movies, right? So, so where do these idols live? You're like, I haven't, I haven't had uh, Aphrodite's uh, temple sacrifice. I haven't kneeled down to anything. Guess what? The idols are not in our houses. The idols are kept in our heart. Look at Ezekiel 14.3. It says that God said to Ezekiel, these leaders, which by the way were church leaders, these leaders have set up idols in their hearts. Hey, Terrence, can you check the clock for me because it doesn't feel right. And if it is right, well, then I need to go a heck of a lot faster. But I just want to say this, that... It's not what we have set up in our houses. You're like, I don't have any shrines in my house, but maybe we accidentally have a shrine in our heart. And that's what this series is about. It unintentionally happened, or I have intentionally not made a decision about God. And it reminds me that when the Song of Solomon says it's these sneaky little foxes that come and try to spoil the vine, it reminds me that the devil is not so dumb. That he goes, hey, you're going to worship God? I'm going to come at that and counteract that with go, worship Satan, worship Satan, worship Satan. How many lovers of God have ever heard that one, right? Worship Satan, right? It's way, it's way too overt. It's way too obvious what's going on. Instead, I'll just send a sneaky little fox to spoil the vine of this love. Because I don't need you to worship Satan if I could just make your number one and your number two swap places. You've just set up an idol that's going to cost you. And I win and you lose. And by the way, oftentimes you're comforted by the roles of religion because you're like, God's somewhere up there. He's number two. That's pretty darn good. Most people do way worse than that. And yet God says here, I am either all or I am nothing. I am the Lord your God. 
I'm the only one who's busted you out of slavery. I am for you. You shall not have any other gods except me. Jesus would later clarify as he said that any follower of mine who does not hate mother, father, sister, or brother in pursuit, in, in relationship with the pursuit of coming after me is unfit for the kingdom of God. Is God saying that I love it when you hate your family members? No. We know that God said God is love. So he's all about love. What he's saying is your number two should be so far of a gap down from your number one that it's seemingly if somebody walked in and went that's your one and that's your number two you must hate your number two that's what Jesus is saying like my family's great but they are so far from number one because my allegiance to God will stay there right your athleticism is great but it is a Far number two to God. Your title is great. Your income is great. But I am willing to lay out all of those so that my God remains number one. Amen? This is what Jesus and God is talking about. This lover in Song of Solomon is saying, before She's saying, let's get rid of them and stand guard for these little foxes for them now so that we don't lose a great thing we've got going on. Let's be mindful that there's going to be foxes trying to come in, and let's make sure we eradicate them. And so King James Version goes on to say, she says that our vines have tender grapes. In other words, our relationship, while it feels strong, let's be real. Anything will try to come and break us up. Come on, the wrong, you looked at me wrong. Come on, he looked at you wrong. They treated you wrong. Come on, all kinds of things will try to separate us. What she's saying is our relationship's tender, and I think this is true of our devotion to God too, because I think we're all prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. I am prone to leave the God I love. So I need to say, take my heart, Lord. Come and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Remember, God gives this Ten Commandments. The first two commandments are very clear, and I've read them. You know what happens as Moses goes down to go, man, we are God's people, and he just busted us out. And then God just spoke, and he wrote these things on a, two stone tablets. And God's been very clear with us. They're going to love it. Let's go see what God's people are doing. You know what they, he came down to find them doing? How are God's people handling this newfound freedom? They've set up golden calves. An idol to replace God because he's not speaking as swiftly as I want him to. And so if you don't say what I want you to say or speak as fast as I want you to speak, I shall put something else in your place, whether it be my wife, my money, my income, my job, my kids, because I can control those. You play in sports, and I'm going to live vicariously through you. And the kid's going, you're crushing me because I'm not your God. Your whole world can't center around me because I'm not God. The whole world centers around him. All other things will be crushed in that seat of comparison. Write this down. If we're prone to intentionally switch devotion to a false God, then we have to intentionally stay in devotion to the true God. 
If, if we are prone to unintentionally switch devotion to a false God, then that tells me then we have to intentionally stay in devotion to the true God. We don't just go, God's my God and that's it. I prayed one prayer and I am set for the rest of my life. It's just going to happen. No. Because if we can unintentionally switch devotions to a false God, we must stay in devotion. That's why I give God the first of my mornings. I get myself a live journal out, and I spend the first of my mornings with God, His Word, and I try to write down what I hear God saying, or what I'm praying, or what I'm chewing on from the Word of God. I give Him my first fruits. I give Him the first of my income and my and my giving. When when God gives to me, I I I, I give Him the first. First of it all, because I need him to be number one in my life. I need to be intentional as I do this and as I do these things. And I give them to him first. Psalms 24, 3 and 4 says, Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? In other words, who gets to stand with God in his holy place? Who gets to be with him in heaven? Oh, we're used to hearing this one. The one who has clean hands and a pure heart. And we typically stop there in the church. But the sentence isn't done. The one who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false God. In other words, we must get this right. Heaven and hell weigh in the balance. We got to get this right. No false God, no idol. And so for the next four weeks, we're going to ask the lordship question. And I'm going to address the four most common American idols that we set up in our lives today. Because it's not Artemis or Aphrodite, and it's not all kinds of weird, different things. There are some who do, but uh, I just did demographics polls, and it's about 7% or less of us in America. Most of us are struggling with a different kind of God. And so we're going to ask the Lordship question all four weeks. Are you ready for it? You ready to write this down? Come on, you got your notebook? Get that pen ready? Or your thumbs? You ready? You ready, church? Here's the lordship question. Who or what rules my behavior? The Lord or a substitute? Who or what rules my behavior? The Lord or a substitute? This is when you might be enticed to just give a Jesus answer. Oh, Jesus. Come on. You learned that in children's church? But you don't get, your mouth doesn't get to declare who your God is. Your behavior does. So who gets to decide my behavior, the Lord or a substitute? Come on up here, team. And, and um, whatever makes my list, all other competitors must bow down to God as number one. It reminds me of a story that illustrates this better than any others. In the Old Testament, One of my favorite stories in the Old Testament, you might be familiar with it, you might not. God's people in the book of 1 Samuel, they are are on a, a crusade. They're trying to establish themselves as the people of God. And God is telling them that wherever you go to battle... Um, bring my presence with me. And so the presence was carried by priests um, carrying the Ark of the Covenant. It was a big golden case that housed the Ten Commandments. By the way, we started with that at the beginning of this sermon. It also had two other things of significance that showed God is with them. And they would often carry God's presence into battle and they would win every single time. 
Soon enough, God's people allowed that to become a religious practice. And what I mean by that is they got a bit sloppy with their devotion to God. They hadn't spent time with God in a long time, and they weren't listening or obeying him, but they did think, hey, we got another enemy, got another battle. Go get God's presence, and if we just bring it in, God will show up and win my battles. By the way, God doesn't promise to fight your battles when you're not fighting to spend any time with him. If I told my wife, hey, you're number one in my life. I just haven't sent any texts in the last five weeks. I haven't seen you in the last three months. But you're number one, baby. Don't, when we agree, my wife would, like, yeah, right. And, and, and they got to a point where they're like, just bring the presence of God and watch us mop up. Here we go. Here we go, pull out the swords. We got the presence of God. And the Bible says they lost. They lost. And the Philistines took the presence of God. And this is where it gets, it gets colorful. I love this part. It says in 1 Samuel 5, after the Philistines captured the ark of God, they carried it into the temple of their god, Dagon, and placed it beside an idol of Dagon. Who is the idol, by the way? He is known as the god of crop fertility. In other words, they may not have just said, hey, we're a people who follow Dagon. They might have been originally the people of God. But they, they said, you know what, we're going to plant crops. And just in case you don't come through, we're also going to pay homage to Dagon as well. So that at least we can eat at night. Like, in case my trust in you fails a little bit, I'll just hedge my bets a little bit. You ever done that one before? I'll just be really good at this, that, or the other, just in case, God, you aren't God. And so they worshipped Dagon, the, the, the god of crop fertility. And it says, but when the citizens of Ashdod went to see it the next morning, they, they didn't know what to do with the god of the universe, so they said, just put it in the same house as our god. That'll be cool. It'll be like a house of gods. Maybe they'll play together. I don't know what they were thinking. But it says in verse 3, when the citizens of Ashdod went to see it the next morning, Dagon had fallen with his face to the ground in front of the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon, and I find this next few words comical. I wonder if God, as he, you know, authored it, was kind of like, because it says, they took Dagon and they put him in his place. Let me help you out. Anytime you have to help your God out to look good, let me help you out. Let me, let me pick you up, you know. You fell over. <laughs> so, so sorry. There's a lot of gods in our lives that we have to help look good. They're false gods. Because my God is the God of the universe who I don't polish him up and I don't rescue him because he's the one who polishes me up and he's the one who rescues me. Can I get an amen? When you serve the real God, you don't have to pick him up. And so they, they pick up their God and they put him in his place. I think, I think God already put Dagon in his place last night. And he says... Verse 4, but the next morning, the same thing happened. Dagon had fallen face down before the ark of the Lord again. This time, his 
head and his hands had broken off and were lying in the doorway. And I have a sneaky suspicion that when you can't lay down your false gods, a breakdown is imminent. God is so in love with you, and he did not create hell for you. It is a very real place with fire and eternal heat. There is no escape from it. And the Bible is clear that he made it for Satan and the fallen angels. And he will fight for you and I's salvation to be eternally in heaven with him, your Lord, your creator, your maker. And, and, and God is trying to help us see that all other gods will fall face down in my presence. Nothing else measures up to me. In fact, it reminds me that um, the bowing of Dagon reminds me of the bowing you and I must all do in our hearts. And so I hope you won't miss any of the next three weeks because for the next three weeks, I'm going to talk about the four American idols of identity, fun, family, and job that we oftentimes switch devotion to. And I'm going to equip you with three ways to keep that idol bridled. Come on. We got to keep it number two at best. And we can do that. But the bowing of Dagon, I, I almost brought figurines. <laughs> they set up two and one's bowed down and now one's broken. It reminds me that you and I have the opportunity to bow our lives to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And if we choose not to, I believe we will be broken when we will be willingly and shockingly and awestruck when we willingly bow down when we meet him one day and we realize he is the God who said he was. I rejected him all my life and I know what I'm about to experience. It's the same thing I told him for the rest of my life. Leave me alone. Don't ever talk to me again. I got it. And I believe that's when God will say, I will let you have your way. I will leave you alone. I will never talk to you again. You got it. It's our decision. Romans 14 says it like this. For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. For it is written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me. There's the bowing again. And every tongue will tell the honest truth that I and only I am God. So then each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. No one's missing out on this. We will all stand before God and we will answer the Lordship question, who or what ruled my behavior? I want to give you an opportunity in this place today as every head is bowed, every eye is closed, Holy Spirit, to have full freedom to move in our lives for there is no condemnation in this place, but the Lord will convict so that righteousness and holiness gets stirred up again. And so in this place, if you know, I have, I, I, I didn't intentionally do it, Pastor, but I know God has not been number one. I know some other things have slipped into the most important thing in my life and has dictated my behaviors lately, and I want to make it right today. Good news is, the Bible says, simply repent. Return to your first love. Say, Father, I don't know how I got here, and I'm so sorry for replacing you. 
I'm going to turn from those decisions and I give lordship back to you. I want to talk to some other people in this place. Those who said, I have never let Jesus become my number one in my life. I want to respectfully tell you, you can bow now or you can be broken when you bow later. The brokenness will be that you wasted your entire life and the next words are probably not going to be words you want to hear when you meet the Father in heaven who loves you, who created you, who gave you a purpose and made you his masterpiece. If you're in this place with your head bowed and you're like, Pastor, I want to bow my life to him right now. I'm going to decrease and he's going to increase. Include me in that prayer. I'm not going to call you out and I'm not going to embarrass you with every head bowed, every eye closed. Would you just slip your hand in the air and say, include me in that prayer. Raise it high enough that heaven sees that you say, include me in that prayer. I see hands all over this place. If you're online and you're like, hey, I I I want that too, just write include me. Or type, I bow down in the chat. We want to connect with you. Don't do this thing alone. But we bow down today. Come on, church, let's pray together. A prayer just acknowledging our weakness and our need for God as Lord. Especially those who raise their hand. Let's pray aloud with the whole church as we say, Jesus, I'm so sorry. I have made mistakes. I've lived in ways you didn't call me to. I know I've hurt you. This is not who I was called to be. I'm sorry, Lord. Thank you, Jesus, that you came out of heaven and you died in my place on the cross so that I could be free of guilt, so I could be free of shame, and so I could start again. You paid the price that was meant for me, so I accept my freedom. I accept my new start, and I ask that you take lordship. You dictate my behavior. You call the shots because I want to live for you. In Jesus' name I pray. And the body of Christ celebrates with heaven the new members of the body of Christ. Come on.